Blender from the beginning had this close connection with artists and creators. And that was a big question. How do we do this in a decentralized manner? How do we make sure the software doesn't go in every single direction and then it goes no direction at all? This is Contributor, a podcast telling the stories behind the best open source projects and the communities that make them. I'm Eric Anderson. Today, we get to talk about Blender, one of the oldest and strongest open source projects I've come across. And to speak about Blender, we have with us Delai, who leads some of the development efforts, been a longtime community member, and is really the best person to talk to us about the Blender project. Thanks for coming, Delai. My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation, Eric. Thank everyone for your attention. So let's get it out of the way and help everyone understand what, you know, for the uninitiated, what Blender is. Blender is a creative tool set. We call it DCC, Digital Content Creation Tool. Basically a tool to allow you to make animations like Pixar-like animations, but relying entirely on the open source pipeline. So it works for games. If you want to make assets for games, it works for movies, animations, scientific visualization, architecture visualization, art, you name it. So Corda Bender is probably 3D, right? It's a kind of a 3D yes, rendering. It's 3D. Nowadays, it has a lot of 2D functionality as well. We see people using it for 2D. I don't know if you've seen last year in the Oscar nominees for, it was in the, I think, international films or animations. I don't remember. We had the I Lost My Body, which was a feature film totally made in Blender, using rotoscopy, using some of the 2D tools in Blender. And now we see more and more studios using Blender for their storyboard pipeline and even for mixing 2D and 3D. So although Blender started as a 3D software, it's also opening up some opportunities for people working with 2D. And we should ground this introduction in timeline because Blender's not new, right? Blender is quite old and Blender as an open source project is a bit younger than Blender itself, but still old enough. I have the numbers here because I didn't want to forget. The Blender official release, the first one is from 1994, January 2nd, 1994. That's 27 years ago. And Blender became open source in 1998, so four years after that. And so much changed since. I've personally been using Blender since 2014, when I did the first course. I knew it before. And I started and I contributed to Blender for more than 11 or 12 years, I think. Amazing. So we'll come back to the product some more when we get to it. But let's pick up at the beginning. How familiar, Delay, are you with the origin stories of Blender? I'm familiar enough that I grew to be a fan of Blender before getting to work to Blender. And that's something that Blender has its mythos. These. It's a really nice backstory that actually I think helps to shape the community in a way. Builds us a narrative. If the software wasn't good enough, that would mean nothing. But since it is, it's nice, uh, nice story to tell. So Blender was started as a small Dutch software, not even in Amsterdam, if I'm not mistaken. And at the time, was one of the few softwares for 3D that could work, could run in, in Mac, in Linux, in Windows, FreeBSD at the time, I remember, I think Silicon Graphic. And it started because Tom, Tom Rosendahl, chairman of the Blender Foundation, my boss. <laughs> 
he wanted to create. He's someone that was very creative. So that was when he was around, I want to say around my age, which is quite scary. He was like 30-something. And then he decided to have a small animation studio. And then they bought a Silicon Graphic. It was a really big and expensive computer at the time. But they didn't have the money to buy the software <laughs> <laughs> to create with the, the, the computer. So he started developing Blender himself. He studied graphic design or industrial design. So he always had an eye for usability, for aesthetics, and is a self-taught engineer or programmer. And he started uh, to develop a software for himself so they could provide service for the local business here and decided to release it for free with a optional paid version of the software. So basically, it could go and download and use most of its functionalities. There was a special key on the keyboard, which was only available if you had uh, the paid version of, the, of Blender. You could you know, do more advanced things. And that's how Blender started to get a community. And things were going well. This is back when internet was quite new and everyone was investing on it. At the time, Blender, New Geo, which was the company behind Blender, was not a number, New Geo, and then went open source. So at the time, the company, they even had a deal with Sony to be able to deploy PlayStation 1 games within Blender, which was really neat. There's this one CD running around every other year, we find it again, that can actually have a PlayStation 1 game, which was entirely created within the Blender game engine and Blender. But Blender had this interactive mode within itself. Um, Blender at the time had like an office, I think, in Japan and in the States, New York, maybe, mostly for legal and, and be able to represent the, the brand there. And everything was really growing. And then the whole internet crashed and <laughs> the whole boom of the internet startups bubble burst. And basically, at that time, Blender was a property of a company who was already have been open to the stock market. So they only had 49% of their own value. So putting simpler terms, Stone had only have 50% minus one ownership of the company, which on one hand is pretty interesting to know if you, you, should, you should get to meet Tom Mons. Just a very dump earth guy. He's the one that buying bread to the studio every day. Every Tuesday he, he does some egg specials, outmatcher, outmatchers is a Dutch thing. And yet he at the time had, I don't know, three, four, seven million euros in stock, something like this, which like 30 something years old is a bit crazy. But from overnight, that meant nothing because the company was, didn't mean a thing. It was not worth a penny. And of course, for the people owning the rights of the software in the company, basically it did not make sense to continue developing Blender. For them it was just money that sank, they didn't want to run into the sunken cost fallacy. You know what? Let's shelve this. One day we can revisit that. And there was a lot of people that already were depending on Blender for their livings. Way less than nowadays, but still people that grew fun of it, what you can do. And then it got to the point where Tom decided to make an online, basically online crowdfunding. That's 998, so that's before Kickstarter. GoFundMe, you name it. And he expected this to last around two years. So he said, you know what? I did enough. I deserve a bit of a rest. Let me have two years to rest and we can set up this foundation, see if it works. Let's try to get the community to buy Blender back from the company. 
So he made a bold offer to the company, which was 100,000 euros at the time. And it was really, as Stone likes to say, it's the kind of number that don't like. He's like, <laughs> that's not too high, that would be impossible to, to get from the people. It's not too low, that would mean nothing to the investors. And there's some stories in between that. I hope one day Tom writes his memoir because he really had to find out who were the founders behind the money because there were some very private elite people. And he managed to find them. So he managed, and then he made an open letter in the Blender website, a mini of an expose, say, hey, would like to <laughs> get hold of the software again, Mr. and Miss, blah, blah, blah. And the moment that went live, the day after he got a call from the agent, say, Tom, let's talk, please remove that from the website. And basically what he expected to do in two years, he managed to do in six weeks. So to this day, if you go to the blender.org about page, you can see people who were original founders of the Blender GPL license. And then it all started, then had a foundation and everything else. That is quite a story. So maybe just to recap some of that, at a necessity, a financial necessity, Tan develops the code base himself to begin with. Eventually, the internet boom gives them an opportunity to bring on investors. They commercialize the effort, and then the bubble bursts. Value is zero, and in order to rescue the demise of Blender, Tan makes a case to buy Blender back and figures out who's the real decision maker here and is able to apply, apply pressure in the right places in order to make it happen. So Tan then buys back Blender for 100K, presumably, yeah, the community does. The community yeah. does. Yeah, oh, right, right. They, they raise the funds. So now the community owns the project to a degree. Yeah, so that's 2002. So Blender, 1994, Blender started initially as an in-house software. 998, Blender went public for people to use it online and buy it. And then that's four years later, 2002, we go open source. So how do we manage a software which was developed in-house as a, in a close contact with artists, how do you then open up and make it open source? Because we see a lot of open source projects that start as community projects from day one, or the brainchild of one, two developers. But Blender from the beginning had its close connection with artists and creators. That's something to this day we still pride ourselves a lot. And that was a big question. How do we do this in a decentralized manner? How do we make sure the software doesn't go in every single direction and then it goes no direction at all? And to do that, we have the, the start of the open movie projects. Maybe you've seen some of them. Big Buck Bunny is a very famous one because it was used for, I think, LG TVs and every other electronic device you can think of. It started as this idea of having artists coming over, people that were already familiar with the software, coming over to Amsterdam for a few months, have a few developers flying over as well. So people that were contributing remotely to come here, have also a crowdfunding to make sure this is possible, so selling DVDs. At the time, it was mostly DVDs. Imagine that. <laughs> so Blender had to go through a few of those transitions, right? And then allowing this to be a focus. So the first open movie was Elephant's Dream. To this day, the movie is on MoMA in New York as a piece of art history. And with the movie, for instance, we got composer nodes in Blender. So composing means you do your whole art within your 3D software. 
and then you want to fix up a little bit the colors, you want to adjust to put some blur to change the background. And this is something that's very usual nowadays to have, but then Blender didn't have, just as an, an example. So Tom said, you know what, let's see what is the minimum things we need to make a nice short movie. And let's make sure we make that public so developers can help us within that agenda. And that worked quite well. So I really like Elephant Stream. It's a bit of uh, an artsy project. <laughs> the story a little bit is very strange. But it, was, it proved a success in terms of fundraising, in terms of development model for Blender. And then after that, there was Big Bug Money, which was a huge success in terms of creating open content. Because open source is not only important for artists that have a studio, that want to have a chance to be in the 3D industry. It's also important for the whole world. If you are, again, developing a new technology to study stereoscopic, what kind of content you can have, which can be a ground truth that you can compare with different publications. If you're creating a new hardware, a new TV, name it. It's nice to have those flashy, high saturated, bright content that is free for everyone to use. So Delight, maybe just make sure I understand that. So Blender for a long time has been open source in terms of the tool. And you're saying that an individual project becomes open source to a degree. This is the open content. Anybody can watch a movie, but you're saying I can see how each frame was developed, the wireframes, the meshes, the textures. You can open every single file of the movie that was made to render out and then re-render it, tweak it, learn from it. So it's, it's an interesting approach for learning that I've seen throughout the years with, with Don. You can have a more structured learning where you have a methodology and you teach the best way to learn whatever craft. But there's the other way, which is just to show. If you take top talent artists and just let them show, let them share how they work, doesn't mean it's the best way to work. Doesn't mean it's the solution that fits everyone. But it's a very open and transparent creative process. So. To this day, like every day here, what we do, we are now about to finish a Sprite Fright movie project. It's coming out. By the time this podcast is out, it's going to be out already for a few days. So go check it out. And it's, um, and not only the movie content is, is available and online, no longer with DVDs, but you know, in the cloud, <laughs> people can download and get all the files. But they also have every step of the way, the, every cut that we pub publish every week, every work in progress image of the artist is all being shared as part of providing tools and the ways for 3D artists to be in the 3D market. So only the 3D software sometimes is not enough. You need to try to burst a little bit that bubble. It's an interesting dynamic we have with this, the art and the development. So to this day, it evolved over the years, but to this day, it's something that makes Blender Blender for sure. Well, one more question on the art, Delay. So who's kind of funding? Who's the creative? Yeah. So somebody decides, I want to make a movie and I'll make it with the Blender Foundation and they're going to help you know, fund it and, and I'll, I'll make the content open source in the end so that people can... How, how does that work? Or what is that exactly? This doesn't exist because on one hand, Blender, the Blender Institute, there's a Blender Foundation, Blender Institute, Blender Studio. I won't bother you with the details, but let's say the Blender mission is not to take over the industry, is not to... Replace Hollywood. It's not only, it's not, it also doesn't want to do unfair competition with content creators. So 
there is someone that can teach Blender and they encourage and they should really do it. Not the Blender Foundation that's going to be monopolizing teaching Blender. Same way for movie making. There's plenty of movies being made with Blender every day. Feature films, short films. There's a movie that's coming out late October, Maya and the Three. The Netflix by Jorge Guterres, the director of Book of Life. And it's a, basically a, a six-episode series, short series, which is 30 minutes each, which is entirely made with Blender and a little bit of Odini, a little bit of, uh, I think, After Effects, but mostly Blender. So those companies are using Blender and they're encouraged to be autonomous. Got it. And when possible, to contribute back. What we have centralized here is short productions, tech demos, to make sure Blender can still be validated in a production environment. Make sure we're not developing Blender in the vacuum. So this movie I'm talking about, this Fright Fright, the pitch is basically Smurfs meets Gremlins. <laughs> Most of the artists are in-house. We had to outsource some of the animators. But the director is someone from outside that came in only for that project. It's Matteo Luma. He's someone who worked as an animator in Toy Story 1, worked as part of the story for Toy Story 2, working in Simpsons as an animator. So a great guy, worked for a few years at Pixar, and said, you know, let's, Blender is the one going out to try to reach to those talents, to try to raise the bar here. But every other move out there just encouraged to be autonomous. And we have, we have Ubisoft doing, supporting Blender and then doing their own projects with, with Blender. So many. I'm looking now at the Blender Dev Fund page just to get the fresh look at the names. Have Activision, that's how we got Ubisoft, that's Ubisoft right? Microsoft, Adobe, NVIDIA, Epic, Amazon, Unity, Facebook, AMD, Google, Microsoft. It's not for Blender to help Hollywood, but it's for like, would expect people that depend on Blender to see the point of helping funding the project and being part of this, contributing to the bug fixing, to report bugs, to polishing it, to develop it. So Delight, also uh, amazing history. Talk us now about the community and how it's evolved and weave your story in there. I, I imagine at some point <laughs> you kind of discovered Blender, joined the community and and then and then became kind of an employee and, and had a role. So so yeah, how, how does the community kind of operate? How has it evolved over time and 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 insert yourself in there? It's an interesting thing to see a product like Blender from inside because it changed so much and still changing a lot. And I know that from the outside, people maybe see only the how things are shiny and how Blender is doing wonders. But we have the growth pain. That's the term people use. <laughs> so Blender was really developed in an RSC chat. I guess on your podcast, a lot of those projects used or still use the good old RSC yeah. clients. <laughs> and really, we could go there. There was this channel called Blender Coders which was a channel that broke the RSC convention of having a dash, but Tom had a close relation with the, RSC, the free node guys and got that uh, his way. Tom is really good at getting things uh, his way. <laughs> and you could just go there and basically reach out. If you're a developer, you could uh, share a little bit what you're working on, something that caught your interest. And you'd see you have Tom replying to you as if, just as part, it's part of his day. Tom was always, maybe that's something, I don't know if I should share much, but if you, re, if you send an email to Tom, Tom's going to reply. 
the reply may be, sorry, I don't have time for that. Sorry, please check the community websites. But he really cares. He really makes time to, to, to everyone. That's a part of them. I think about his personal agenda, his personal mission. So Blender was really this community of people that would still have a centralized guidance. There was the Blender conferences, which were the moment where developers and artists that could go to Europe would get together once a year, be on face-to-face. My first one was 2008. Maybe you can sort of like explain a little bit how I got into B because I used Blender because, you know, I started to study architecture, architecture and urban planning, and I knew some open source software could be used for that. So I went there and there was this big website called Blender Brazil, where Brazil had the biggest forum at the time and one of the biggest Blender communities. And it was a weekend course, four weekends that I could go and attend to learn the basics of Blender, really like baby steps. I got into using Blender, I started to use it for my projects in the university. I went to Canada as an exchange student, got a work at UBC, University of British Columbia, because of my portfolio with Blender. We are doing a real-time fish visualization, ecosystem visualization, but driven by Blender, the Blender game engine. And we are using Blender and uh, the Blender game engine at the same time that the Blender Institute were doing their third open project. So we had Elephant's Dream was a movie, Big Bug Bunny, that's the one I told with flashy, high saturated colors. And then we had Eo Frankie, which was a game project. So your Frankie started as a partnership with Blender and Crystal Space, the open source game engine. And at some point they decided to do the whole thing with Blender and the Blender game engine. So there was a lot of attention given to the Blender game engine. It was a good time for us to also depend on it for the project I was working on. And then we found the first bug. That was that simple, how I started getting more involved with the software. There was this one bug where basically we had a school of fish so we had an invisible fish lead in the school and have other fish always basically was a follow the leader, was a, forgot the name of the, it. Was, it functionality to just try to keep track of this leading fish. But at some point, every now and then, we would see a wall of fish, a bunch of fish just swimming in one line. Like, how is that possible? And because Blender is open source, I could just look at the code and I went to that function which was doing this. And it was basically the value of pi, so pi 3.14, was hard coded to 5.14 instead of 3.14. So for some reason, the function which was supposed to flip at some point if the number was higher than pi was never finished. So they were just stuck in this perpetual direction. I'm like, huh. And you change that and you compile Blender again and then everything works. And it's just so magical to be able to hands-on contribute something that you use every day and you rely on. So I remember then sending the patch. That's a funny thing. People that reviewed my work at the time, this was 11 years ago, were people that to this day are still involved with the Blender development. And then you do one patch, another patch. I started to... Yeah, there's a lot of people would reach out to Tone uh, when they needed developers or technical directors or artists sometimes even. And I remember at the time, Tom got uh, reached out by a company from Canada. They wanted to do full domes for VJs and architects. And then basically Tom contacted me and I helped them. And that's for me how I really got into Blender because then I had something which was for a client that was being paid to do that, that job. 
but it's something that was aligned enough within the Blender agenda. But the burden of managing myself, dealing with clients, dealing with money, was never on the Blender side. So Blender really grew to try to trust those partners. Money is good, it helps, but if the community the, that grows around Blender can be of third-party studios, uh, companies, whatever, that not only help Blender, but also help to implement things in Blender themselves and have taken all the burden of you know, doing whatever, it helps to scale a lot. So we a little bit have this model of trying to get studios to use Blender for feature films and maybe sending artists over to help their pipeline. That happened for Plumiferos in Argentina some years ago. It was basically the first feature film with Blender and Tom said, you know what, let's send two of our top artists go there to help their pipeline because it's better for us if they do the film with their own expertise and they contribute back. And then they have one developer there was then contributing to Blender instead of becoming a software company, which I think would be the alternative on just getting money and then hiring and then growing and hiring. That's not how we do community uh, open source, at least. Fantastic. And you became an employee, right? Maybe walk us through the economics a bit on Blender, just because I, th I think all of us kind of understand how a business would work. And we have some idea of how the foundation work. You, you take donations, you have these partner companies you mentioned earlier, our revenue sources. You run employees as well as community folks. And, and how do you kind of think about your work when there's bugs and work to be done? What does the community do and what do employees do? Nowadays, we are trying to define the roles a little bit more. Tom posted recently an article to try to lay out his vision to how the models can be empowered to work with the communities, but with autonomy. Um, what they're trying to have is having the strategic projects is still being done mostly for here, locally in uh, the Blending Studio. That's not to say that we cannot have strategic parts of Blender done remotely. And we have core developers, which are crucial to Blender that work remotely to Blender. But this is a way to make sure there's a reason for us to be here. That why I'm here in Amsterdam and not in Brazil? Like, what's the difference? And there must be something to begin from being sitting with artists every day, to be seeing every day we walk, to go to the kitchen, we see the big screen rendering the latest frame of the movie. So we are trying to structure ourselves and having strategic projects at least incubated here and then once they have their material enough, we can uh, start a process of either usually of handover to the community, which is which done to the modules per se. So modules are the different parts of Blender. We have module owners, which are developers and artists. We have module contributors, which are the community. A good example of this is the Jump to Nodes project. It's something I've been quite involved with and something very new and recent to Blender where we had as a project going on for some for one year, I think at least, by Jack Luke, one to two years. And we decided to pivot a little bit and try to set up as a project to do particles and animated effects with Blender. Basically, uh, procedural modeling. Imagine you have a building that you can tweak something and then the building gets shorter, gets more or less doors. This is very common, for instance, for AI training. You know, you want to train your car uh, frontal camera to make sure you don't hit any baby. So you have those mods of humans that you can tweak and they're more taller, shorter, skinnier, better, have a baby, no baby. 
but it's also useful for all sorts of things, motion graphic, VFX. So we decided to take this project and try to ground this to the studio here. And we started the main design here. And then as soon as we could, we had a well-documented list of to-dos. And then we just had the community contributors joining the project to this day. People just, the first contribution we got for geometry nodes, we are not even expecting it. We're still finishing up the documentation to be sure we could have more people to help to build up uh, the project. And someone just jumped in, hey, I assume you guys might need this node. <laughs> Take a subsurf mode, okay. Hey, I assume you. So let's say strategic projects try to start incubated here. We have tactical projects, which is responsibility of the modules. For the moment, something is more well-defined when the big picture and the big design is clearly approved and communicated then it's more tactical. The modules can reach out to, to artists, to other developers, trying to get, you know, just, well, you work with product, right, Eric? Yes. Still do, I believe. You know, the classic must have and good to have separation of the backlog. Let's say the must have is something we can make sure the core team handles and tackles it. And the good to have is the thing that is really, really Perfect for the community to collaborate. So that's uh, it, it fits this kind of project really well. Amazing. The Blender team has paved the way for a lot of organizations on on how to do this. I think having wrestled with these problems for so long and so successfully, maybe take us to the current state. What's happening at Blender these days, and what can folks do to get involved? Are there Blender conferences? Where do people on Blender hang out? We're still based here in Amsterdam, where some restrictions still apply. So this is going to be the second year without a Blender conference, which is uh, it's really sad. <laughs> yeah. It's always in Amsterdam, right? The conference. It's always in Amsterdam. We are to have the first America Blender conference last year. It's going to be in LA, Los Angeles, to be close to Hollywood, to studios. Maybe we'll do it next year. we we'll see. So we still hang out online. We are still... Even though, as I said, like from the outside, it feels like, oh, we figured it out. We're still fighting the growth pain every single day. For us, it's been really hard not to be able to hire much or to, to, to increase our network during those years, to past years. We even started some HR training here at the Institute itself to try to structure ourselves a bit better, know how we can grow, how we can invest on the existing team. And every now and then, we, the solution to some of the problem is, oh, let's hire a senior developer, blah, blah, blah. Let's hire a top designer. Let's hire. But it's so hard now. <laughs> so it's not like we're stuck, but we're trying to survive at least six more months. Uh, just keep releasing Blender, keep working on it. But they do expect next year to start having more workshops. That's something we really want to get. Basically, have fly people over, developers, studios, artists, and try to tackle one big project at a time. That's something we're doing a lot nowadays since this year, last year, this year. Try to have, instead of having 20 projects happening at the same time, try to have more people work on the same project and then put my emphasis on, hey, you are in the community, you want to help? Please check the agenda first, see what you can help on what we're developing already because we might not have time or energy to go over every single agenda that people might bring to the table. 
So for anyone wanting to contribute, come online, go join the, we, we have a website called blender.chat, which will replace the IRC. These you can see every day, people talking and sharing questions and whatnot. We have every week, we have a weekly notes on what changed to Blender, notes in the individual modules. Most of the activity is in the modules. So you always ask people, what is your area of interest? Because, you know, it's, it's important for people to be motivated, right? to find what is their call, and then try to see, okay, maybe that module is well-structured, maybe it's not so much, but if it's well-structured, there's probably a meeting every week or every other week. Meetings are always open to anyone. We're open to a fault, like for, I don't know in the history of Blender if anyone has been ever permanently banned. Temporarily, once or twice, but permanently never, which is, that's Tom's like direction, you know. But really, get involved if you're an artist or help passing the new features. We have a very clear beta period in the Blender development. It's next week, we started the beta for the Blender 3.0. So, and so people are really encouraged to go and test and try to find new bugs, try to find from the existing bugs, see if they can help reproduce the bug, they can uh, simplify the files. It's Blender. If there's a site I put together called metrics.blender.org, where you can see how many basically bug reports we have every day. How many do you think we have? How many do I think you have? Yeah, new bug reports every single day. New bug reports every day. Uh, a couple dozen. It's 30 every day. It's a lot. 30 new bug reports every day. We have an average of three to five patches every day from the community, not even including core uh, contributors. So we have, <laughs> have those numbers that keep going up and like try to manage that. So we definitely need help from people that are interested on getting their hands dirty and really do the job, which is sometimes not as glamorous as changing the user interface and adding this new feature that everyone gets right, to use. Right, right, yeah. Maintenance. But everything you can do to help may help maybe another developer to focus on the high-priority projects and whatnot. Like get involved. We even hired recently a community developer coordinator. Someone to focus on the online community because it was just so much work. It's a full-time job just to see if the newcomers are being properly onboarded, the documentation is in place, if there's enough artists involved in the decisions, in the modules. So I think it's a good moment to be involved. Fantastic. July, I really appreciate you coming to tell us the story today. Blender, as I mentioned at the beginning, I feel like it's paved the road for a lot of other communities and projects to develop. And it's a field, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about like kind of app development software on here because that's often what becomes open source. But it's exciting to see a, a creative field design. It's still a desktop experience. It's going to be for a couple yeah. of years, maybe whatever. <laughs> So folks can find you specifically as well as the rest of the Blender community by going to the Blender websites. There's, there's uh, joining the chat rooms. We have enough channels where all the communication can be public. So Blender chat, we have DevTalk. It's a forum for onboarding. We have the mailing lists if anyone wants to join. But if you just go to blender.org and get involved, it's right there in the main page. You have all the information you need. And if the information is not clear enough, then you can reach out to me and let me know. I'm at Dalai at Blender.org. Send a hi if you listen to this. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you, Dalai. Have a good day. Thanks so much, Eric. Bye-bye. 
find today's show notes and past episodes at contributor.fyi. Until next time, I'm Eric Anderson, and this has been Contributor.